This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas from some of the most interesting and creative minds around. The Think Again podcast takes us in a completely different direction. It takes us out of our comfort zone, surprising me and my guests with unexpected conversation starters from Big Think's interview archives ideas that we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. I'm very excited to be joined today by the inimitable New York Times bestselling science writer, Mary Roach. Uh, Mary's one of the funniest, best writers I've ever read in any genre, frankly, and her books delve deep into subjects that if they weren't written so interestingly by Mary, many people might prefer to run away from screaming. They include Bonk, the curious coupling of science and sex, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, many others, and the new one, which is called Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. Welcome to Think Again, Mary. Thank you. I, I wanted to start by talking to you about squeamishness and what, if anything, you've learned about squeamishness in your many years of researching and writing about subjects that I think a lot of people are probably squeamish about. Yeah, squeamishness is I think that squeamishness comes partly from a fear of the unknown. And I think when you put people in a room with the thing that they're squeamish about, often the squeamishness falls away and they realize that they're actually just sort of curious and fascinated about it. It's possible I'm wrong. It's possible I'm just a, a strange, <laughs> weird person whose <laughs> squeamish gene was damaged. <laughs> but I do, I, you know, I, I am not entirely without squeamishness. Like when I, for example, the body farm, I mean, I, you know, I, I walked into that place with a certain amount of trepidation, this being a place where they study they, science, science, <laughs> study human decomposition. And I knew that there were, it was a hot, day in Tennessee and there were dead people lying around decomposing with a lot of maggots. And I was, I was not like, oh, yeah, this is my idea of a summer afternoon. Right. No, I was, I had a certain amount of trepidation, but it was so interesting what the researcher was talking about and showing me. And when you realize what you're seeing, you know, the science behind it and what's going on, it's like this whole world is kind of opening up. And that's so interesting that the, the you gross kind of just falls away. So, Everybody copes in their own way. <laughs> uh, you know, in the book that you've just um, you're, that you're just publishing, Grunt, which is about military science and science related to things military. You know, you're dealing with penis transplants, maggots, um, all kinds of 
all kinds of things that, that soldiers have to face and that, that scientists help them with. What, out of all of the, the research you did, like what surprised you most? What did you find most fascinating? Um, I mean, there's many, many fascinating things in the book, but what, what, what really did it for you? The moment that I remember being most surprised was when I, I, I was talking to this surgeon at Walter Reed, who's he's a urologist and he deals, uh, he does a lot of genital reconstruction. And we were talking about what you can do, different options. And I said, yeah, it, like, what about transplanting? Can you transplant a penis? Thinking, well, duh, no, of course you can. And he said, well, yeah, they're actually working on it now. And there's some cadaver work going on over at Johns Hopkins. And I'm like, right. what? What? <laughs> paging Mary Roach, paging Mary Roach. <laughs> yeah, what was Cadaver really? Cadavers and penises. <laughs> I had absolutely no idea anybody was working on that. So that was that was the biggest surprise or the moment where I kind of sat up and went, what? Yeah, there were a couple of really interesting things about that section of your book. Like one is the one was the fact that which I hadn't considered that that if you do transplant testicles, then you are dealing with somebody else's genetic material and the issue of whose child will it be if the person who has had the transplant reproduces and whether the person who is donating the organ had actually consented to have their reproductive organs used in, in that way. And also the fact that, if I read this correctly, there's something fine, like people are okay with face transplants and hand transplants, but there might be something different for them about, about having someone else's penis. Did I read that correctly? Yeah, that's right. There's, um, yeah, there are a lot of question marks. Uh, um, there are a lot of, you know, terra incognita in terms of <laughs> ethics and, and uh, well, not, not really ethics. I mean, there's nothing unethical, but there, yeah, the, the implications of taking somebody's genetic material and the donor, even the donor's parents, the, the donor's widow, all, how will they all feel about that? And I should point out that's not happening. They're not taking the testicles. They're not taking right. the gonads. It's just the, the penis right. and the surrounding tissue. Nerves. I mean, as yet, yes. although it yes. doesn't seem impossible. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's interesting how new medical and scientific advances just open up whole new cans of worms for us. Yeah, it just, it, this is why there are whole, uh, you know, medical ethics is a whole, what's the word I want? Field, discipline. Uh, discipline, thank you. Okay, all right. <laughs> I don't know. I'm only halfway through my cup of coffee, so. <laughs> but yeah, we should, me. for the listeners, I'm on the East Coast, it's noon here, and it's a whopping 9 a.m. back where, where Mary is. Um, <laughs> Shall we? Shall we? Shall we go to the? Uh, shall we go to the the second part of the show where we engage our surprise, curiosity, and possibly yeah. horror with what are the clips that they've given? They've uh, found for us. This is going to be scarier than walking into the body farm, or it, less it, scary. It. It. We. I don't know. I mean, well, to take the pressure off somewhat, we don't have to actually sound smart about these things. We just have to kind of free associate off of them and go where okay. we go. So, okay. It looks like this one is. With Sherry Turkle, who's, uh, oh, interestingly, a professor who deals with the ethics of technology at MIT. And the video is called Emotional Fantasy. AI can pretend to love us, but should we love it back? I have very strong feelings about 
uh, a future in which robots become the kind of conversational agent that pretend to have emotional lives. Shortly after I finished Reclaiming Conversation, I was interviewed for an article in the New York Times uh, about Hello Barbie. So Hello Barbie comes out of the box and says, you know, and now I'm just paraphrasing the gist. Hi, I'm Hello Barbie. I have a sister. You have a sister. I kind of hate my sister. I'm jealous of your sister. Do you hate your sister? Let's talk about how we feel about our sisters. In other words, it, it, it just kind of knows stuff about you and is ready to talk about the arc of a human life and sibling rivalry and as though it had a life, a mother, the feelings of jealousy about a sister and was ready to relate to you on that basis. And it doesn't. It's teaching pretend empathy. And this is really not a, in my view, this is really a not good direction for AI to go. There are so many wonderful things for robots to do. Having pretend empathy gets children and gets elders, which are the other target group, into a kind of fantasy miasma that is not good for anybody. I kind of want that Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> I get, I, I absolutely understand what she's saying, and I don't think a robot is a good replacement for human conversation. But what if a what if a child's parents are uncomfortable having these conversations, and the child is upset, and maybe having the con maybe having the conversation with a robot is better than not having it at all? I don't know. Maybe, do although I'm thinking, you know, when you talk about a child and their parents, like. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the problem with a lot of this stuff, right, is it's there's so, so many maybes that it's almost impossible without actually doing the experiment of releasing the thing into the culture to see what's what's what. Um, but, I, you know, I was thinking like, well, if your parents can't do that for you and you don't have a robot to do that for you, maybe you sort of demand that from your parents one way or the other in such a way that is beneficial to them as people, yeah. you know, and to you in terms of your relationship. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, you don't want the robot to be the parent's excuse for not having a difficult conversation. Like, you know what, instead right. of sitting down and talking about this, let's go buy a $10 Barbie doll and forget about it. Yet another way to sort of outsource, uh, you know, yeah, the difficulties yeah. of parenting, like the medication or robots. Yeah, Emotional outsourcing. Yeah, I agree with her. I mean, I think it's, it's clear that human interactions are more valuable, particularly parent-children. Right. It's hard to imagine a scenario where that would be something you'd welcome into your life. Yeah. I mean, I can easily see you writing a book about some of the things I've heard tell of that are going on in like Korea and Japan in terms of robot nurturers and people like marrying these these kind of, you know, I guess early stage emotional AI, um, but like who they've fallen in love with and then are legally yes. allowed to marry somehow. Yes, exactly. I remember <laughs> coming across that in Bonk and thinking this is the saddest thing I've ever heard. And there's a site now called and maybe I'm maybe I don't understand this site. It's called Invisible Girlfriend, okay. but I think it has, it's got a lot of subscribers, and and it's they they have a podcast they wanted me to do, and I got this email from my publicist saying, "Do you want to talk to them?" And I'm like, "Wait a minute, I, is this a joke, Invisible Girlfriend?" And then I went on the site, and it's not. You 
you can program like the, the number of texts you want to get from your invisible girlfriend and what you want to talk about. And I still don't quite understand, is this something you do so your mom will get off your back about not having a girlfriend? Or is this, <laughs> do you actually, is that the girlfriend you really want? I don't know. I'm confused. I'm lost. And I'm a, a drift, adrift in my own culture here. Yeah. It's very hard. I mean, it's very scary. I mean, certainly, like, so did you, when you were in Bank, were you dealing also with, like, sex robots and the ethics of that at all? Yeah, not not so much. Bank was really a sex lab book. It was gotcha. a, a book about taking the, the study of the physiology of sex and bringing it into a laboratory setting, which is, of course, delightfully awkward. <laughs> right, right. Um, to bring people in and, like, say, okay, okay perform. Yeah. Now you lie down or, you know, just <laughs> you and your finger, whatever, and, and we'll be monitoring you. I mean, that was just a delightfully awkward scenario. So robots and AI and virtual reality sex, that whole cultural shift and world I didn't step into with the exception of I think there's a, there is a chapter on sex machines because Masters and Johnson had invented one incredibly back in the this we're talking about the late 50s and early 60s they had um, wow. created an artificial coition machine it's basically a, a sex machine you know like it's like a phallus with a camera and a light source because they wanted to document female sexual response from the inside which oh, is wow. kind of amazing in the in the context of when they were doing their work and how conservative the culture was yeah that's pretty progressive and then, yeah. yeah and they had women come in and they'd have sex with this artificial coition machine and they'd document their responses, responses. etc and that machine doesn't exist anymore. Incredible. It should be in the Smithsonian, that machine. I don't know why, <laughs> where it is. I tried to track it down. I was told it was dismantled. But anyway, so because of that, I went to a book party for a book of photographs about people and their sex machines. It's, an amazing, it's kind of like Diane Arbus in the world of <laughs> extreme okay, sex yep. toys. Anyway, so in that, and I went to the book launch party, which included sex machines that everybody was... Uh, invited to try out, and only one person did. Uh, they were invited to wait. They were invited to try to, them to, at the book launch party. At the book launch party, yeah. yeah. Okay. You were supposed to go into another room and then come back. No, and right there in front. No, right wow. there in front of everybody. Okay. Yeah. Right. So that was the extent of my um, my wanderings into the world of machine human sex. Yeah, that's very different from the book launch parties I've been to. <laughs> Well, you know, they had the, they had the wine in the plastic cups. They had people milling around, just like in the corner. There's a woman having sex with a machine. I don't know why I don't get invited to these sorts of book launch parties. Anyway, <laughs> but, uh, I think yeah, I think we've we you know we could go further with this one, but let's let's move on and okay. see what the next clip is. Okay. Yep. It's Simon Critchley examines Simon Critchley. Friedrich Nietzsche. Okay. So I'm gonna watch that, and then we'll and then really? we'll come back. <laughs> Really? <laughs> really? Okay, right. here we go. Nietzsche describes a madman who runs into a public square shouting, God is dead. And uh, the people don't believe him and he's laughed at. Um, he came too soon, he says. He came too, I came too soon. But the, the thought here is, is deeper and more interesting. It's not that the Nietzsche said God is dead, something you can find on, on toilet walls the, the world over, is that God is dead, we have killed him. And what Nietzsche means by that, I think, is that the outcome of history 
is the death of God. We no longer need, or we no longer can believe in those sorts of assurances which, which theology gave us. Let's say through the development of science and technology, we've got ourselves to a position where God is an accessory that we can do without. So it's not that Nietzsche is as it were, celebrating the death of God. Right? He thinks that, that God is a pretty bad idea. It makes us uh, cringing, uh, cowardly, submissive creatures. But it doesn't mean that the, the opposite is something to be celebrated. We shouldn't just celebrate um, our, our, our you know, that would, that would lead to sort of nihilism. You know, it's sort of like, okay, our technology and our science and our knowledge have convinced us that God cannot exist, is what Simon Critchley seems to be saying, Nietzsche is saying to us. And yet, uh, it's hard for me to understand how, for example, the ancient Mesopotamians, whose crops and houses were washed away completely seemingly at random all the time whether they prayed to the gods or not how their knowledge of the world wasn't sufficient to overcome their belief in god god or gods yeah it is a little <laughs> insulting to all <laughs> the ancients <laughs> you know, like you guys were so dumb that you actually thought there's some guy up there who was running all the controls and the weather and everything ah, idiots right I didn't, I didn't really think of, think about it from that perspective because what he says makes a tremendous amount of sense and possibly it's just his accent because if anybody has a british accent i'm like god you're right they're very you're convincing right. <laughs> the british people aren't they just by the yes, way they, they speak are. yeah i know yeah yeah, but what, what he says <laughs> makes perfect sense. But what you're just, yeah, yeah, it, it, it is a little patronizing to these people. Who yeah, whether it's scientific or technological or whether it's just the sort of chaos of actual life, there like have always been sufficient incongruities that people might say, you know what, this idea of some creator watching over us doesn't make a whole lot of sense, you know. If they were going to say that, they might have said it 5,000 years ago as well as now when we have robots. Yeah, right. I think science and technology have, you know, have traveled such a long way since the idea of God first was circulating that it does seem to, we do have a menu of other options for explaining things that we didn't have now. I mean, right, evolution right. and cosmology. And I mean, there's a lot of big right. questions out there that we now have some plausible alternative explanations for. So, you know, and back then, back then, whenever it was, <laughs> back then, them. Right. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it, it does. It's yeah, a, it's, no, that's right. So God has, the, the God as an explanation has kind of been upended one after another from each of these things like, uh, like, as you say, cosmology or genetics or whatever. So therefore, it's more, you know, it's easier to, for a larger number of humans to accept that he might not be the explanation, he or she might not be the explanation for anything. Right, but that, but that assumes that the main reason people believe in a God is as an explanation, and I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think that the notion of a God offers people comfort and hope more than an explanation hmm. for big questions. I mean, and this is my arrogance as, an, as a kind of I might have called myself an agnostic at one point, but I'm now would probably say I'm an atheist in the sense that I just see no reason to believe in any kind of God. But, you know, it may be my arrogance, but my, my feeling is like in ancient times, the reason for that coming into human history would have been 
like fear, like you don't know what's going on and there's, you know, all this stuff that you don't understand. And, you know, as you say, reassurance, uh, you know, it's comforting to think that there's actually some kind of sense and order that, you know, that is benevolent or at least, you know, responsive. Right. And I think also you can't overlook historically kind of practicalities of religion you you right. got, you know you you were threatened with ostracism punishment um you know and in some cases harassment and murder you know uh, if you didn't fall into line and believe and whether or not you really believed or that's what you had to do because that was the key tenet of your culture then you know you accepted it you may not in your heart of hearts believe that you're going to go to heaven when you die that there are angels that there's a hell right. how many people re- really at the end of the day buy that whole package i think it it, it was uh, and sometimes there's fine you know there was financial gain i mean i remember being in india not that long ago in a a village of dalit uh which is a you know the quote-unquote untouchable caste and uh-huh. there were these little huts there was no pump no well in the village but there were satellite dishes and someone had come around <laughs> come around and bought these satellite dishes for these people who didn't have televisions had nothing but that set them it was such a like it's like you i'm gonna buy these votes and i think you know people like religion, you know, re- missionaries have often, you know, I mean, they do a lot of tremendous charitable work, but there's, it, you know, there's no thing as a free lunch. You are now going to go to church and be a member of this religion because they've done so much for you. I mean, it's a financial transaction historically as well. So there's, there's all of that playing into it too. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And like my experiences with religious people have revealed that Every single one of them interacts with or with that larger culture of their church or their temple or whatever in a different way. Like the actual meaning that that those ideas have for that individual person can vary greatly. Like within the Hasidic communities here in New York, which I'm fascinated by because they're living in a kind of 17th or 18th century reality right in the middle of like Brooklyn. I know that, you know, there are some of them who are like on Shabbat when they're not supposed to light a fire or do work or whatever, they'll set an automatic timer or they've got automatic elevators that stop at every floor. And like somehow within that sub-community of Hasidim, there is the sense that God's either going to overlook that or he's just not going to catch it or something, you know, and then and then and then there's other groups living right next door to them, you know, that are also, you know, other sects or families of Hasidic Jewry that are like, that's ridiculous. You you guys are cheating. God knows. I'm like you. I'm on a, I want to run into that community and I want to be the writer in residence in that community for a year. I mean, can you, I mean, yeah. but I would, they'd hate me. I mean, cause I'd be like, this is crazy. What you're, what do you mean? You can't. Okay. So you're not allowed to show your hair because I guess it's a, to a, you're going to be attractive to men or something, but then you put on a wig. What the fuck? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And a lot, I think, I think a lot of times like, yeah, within those groups, because the, I don't know, the pressures and the culture are so strong. There's just a lot of questions you simply don't ask because it just, what's the point anyway? Like, we're not going to upend all this. Right. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it's sort of to each his own. It's none of my business how if you, you want to live your life that way and you're not harming anyone else, then do it. Yeah. I would agree. And to that, I would add to Nietzsche his own. Yes. 
<laughs> and to that crazy man who ran into the square. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I like him too. I want to talk to him. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I totally do too. Like to be the only one uh, so far ahead of his time or I don't know, outside of his time. Anyway. And if he only could know that how many centuries later we're still talking about him. I know he would be, I think he would find it gratifying or maybe a, some consolation anyway for probably having been burnt at the stake. <laughs> exactly. Shall we, shall we see what the third <laughs> video is? Let's watch the third one. This All right. is fun. This is fun. Um, okay, this one will be Lisa Randall on Dark Matter. She's a physicist. Dark matter is just a form of matter, which is to say it acts like matter when it comes to gravity. So it clumps together like the matter we know about. It's found in galaxies, for example, because of the gravitational force. What distinguishes dark matter from ordinary matter is that it has no interaction, as far as we know, with light. So we see ordinary matter, it's made up of atoms. Atoms is, are made up of charged particles. But so far as we know, dark matter is just an entirely new form of matter. The reason we're aware of dark matter is because of the gravitational effects. In fact, if you look at just the energy stored, there's five times as much dark matter as there is ordinary matter. So you observe its gravitational effects in galaxies, for example. I mean, one of the ways we first knew about dark matter was by looking at um, the motion of stars. The motion of stars responds to the gravitational force of all the matter around. It doesn't care whether or not it interacts with light. The stars, of course, are bright because they interact with light. But they're responding to the gravity of the matter, including the dark matter. So that was evidence for dark matter. And now there's lots of other evidence for dark matter, too, having to do with the way light bends or what galaxy clusters look like when they merge. So there's really a lot of physical evidence that tells us dark matter is out there in the universe. Wow, I think that this, I think that this uh, explains why religion still has such a stronghold on because it's so much easier to just like, you know what, there's some big dude with a gray beard up there who does everything. Okay, I'm done. I'm moving on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the physicists are the one that's right. Like while all the kind of medical science scientists are, are down here going like, well, we've figured this out and we figured that out. And it's only a matter of time before we figure this out. Like the physicists are the ones that are really pushing us to these limits of like, we don't know anything. Everything we think is wrong. Reality behaves the way that we think it behaves only within certain narrow kind of frameworks. Right, right. I just have to say, yeah, physicists, theoretical or particle physicists, either one, they fascinate me. I mean, I've, I, I blank out pretty quickly into these conversations because I can't, I don't yeah. have the background to really grasp it. I dated, like her, a really smart really attractive physicist and I would like sit, <laughs> sit down and say okay explain antimatter dark matter explain you know and he'd start talking to be the same thing I'm like I would be going like wow you're a really beautiful person and you're and you're really I don't understand I, and I can't have a conversation with you I mean who, who I mean she what if what if what if what if she meets like I don't know a, a guy who builds birdhouses for a living or something I mean how can they make that work I mean what I don't know. I'm obviously running running away as fast as I can from dark matter because I don't have a background to, to understand we it. We can, we, you know, I think we're both in the same boat. So, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about your oeuvre. You tend to... My what? Your work, you know, your oeuvre. Oh, your oh, my, oh my oeuvre. <laughs> yeah, I was just, yeah. You forgive the... Yeah, I was just trying to pronounce that French word as Frenchly as possible. Um, 
But, you know, every, all your books deal with very human sciences, like sciences that interact very deeply with like our emotions and the way that, you know, and just human stories. How do you, how do you choose your subjects? Like how do you decide which, like what's going to be the next book, you know, or where, what you want to investigate? I like to stay in the world of science, but I, I am inhabiting a really small and somewhat anachronistic piece of science, which is, you know, bodies on slabs or in sex labs or in space or in combat there where the science is still operating on a scale that we can see it. Uh, and, right. and I'm, I'm not going molecular. I'm not going into the genome. I'm not going into protein receptors. And I'm, I'm not, I, right. uh, because partly, partly because I don't have the background for it, but also because then it's it's hard to make it a human story without the human being in the picture. Right, right, and right. So I, I yeah, yeah. So I, I'm very I'm very limited in you know, people call me a science writer, but there's a little sliver of, of the world of science that I can really feel comfortable wading into and talking about. Yeah, I had a writer on this show once, Jan Martel, the guy who wrote um Life of yeah. Pi. And he was saying like we had a physics video, a theoretical physics video, and he was like, my brother is a theoretical physicist. And basically I just, it's, it just feels utterly irrelevant to me as a human being. It has no place for humans in it. It is the cold vacuum of space. I just, I don't see how it intersects or, or you know, should really matter in my life <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> but if you've read Life of Pi, it's like you created a whole universe Life of Pi to me feels like this is a, I wouldn't, if you told me he has a background in theoretical physics and alternate universe parallel whatever hoo-ha theory, I'd be like, yeah, that explains Life of Pi. <laughs> sure. Yeah, the one way that I can relate to theoretical physicists, because I think that, first of all, they're mathematicians, and they are people, for the most part, probably, who were able from an early age to relate to the abstractions of math and just kind of proceed from there logically um, to physics. <clears throat> so that's already a major point of departure for me, like already you're off somewhere else. But like where I can relate is this wanting to be at the place where the questions that are really, really hard to answer and that might not ever get answered and that like even if you answer them or, or, or that you might yeah. discover that it's a completely different question by the time you get close, right. you know? You know that right. that I, I can relate I, to. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't. I don't hate. Them. <laughs> no, I, I love them. I love that somebody is taking this on and asking these questions. That somebody's brainy enough and well educated enough in mathematics and conceptual physics right. to actually ask these questions and figure these things out. Because now we, we you know, it gets back to Nietzsche and, and or Nietzsche. <laughs> it, you know, gets it gets back to having other options besides uh, religion for how we view the universe and the world. I mean, we we live in a house in a neighborhood, but we also live inside a universe, and, right. and it, it's important to understand it. And I just love that people like her not only can figure it out, but also, I mean, she she's very good at explaining. And I think there are probably people who are just a little bit smarter than me who probably followed every word she said, even though they don't have a background. And that's such a gift to give to everybody. So that's right. Um, I, that's right. I don't understand it, but I love that it's going on. And kind of extending what you're saying, I think that those stories that they 
tell us, you know, the, the, those things that they discover and those kind of ways of looking at the universe. I mean, when once dark matter can be explained in a way that a person who's not a physicist can actually latch on to in some way, it starts to inform our worldview. Like you say, we live in the universe and we live in the universe as we understand it. And that that does do something in terms of how we understand ourselves. Yeah, very, very much so. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm so grateful to people who do that very hard, complicated, unfathomable work. Me too. So thank you, physicists. And you guys keep at it, all right? <laughs> guys and gals. Uh, I don't want to be gender specific. Mary Roach, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. This has been a really fun conversation. It's been very fun. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And everyone, I highly, highly recommend Mary's new book, Grunt. Can you say the subtitle? I forgot. It's not in front oh, of me. Oh, yeah, sure. The Curious Science of Humans at War. Definitely, definitely worth reading and totally fascinating. All right. Thanks again, Mary. Hey, thank you so much. It was just really fun. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. I want to thank everybody for listening to the show. We are just over a year old, which means a lot in the world of podcasting. Uh, there are a lot of podcasts out there, and many of them do not stick around that long. So, Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for supporting us and telling people about us. If you have the time and if you haven't done it, if you could just go to iTunes or wherever you listen and rate or review the show, that has a huge effect on how discoverable we are among the many, the 250,000, I think it is, podcasts out there. Rate and review us if you can at your convenience. That would mean a lot. Next week, I'm back with experimental philosopher, and author Jonathan Keats. He is a very, very smart guy and a longtime friend of Big Think, and it's a really, really interesting show. I hope you'll join us. See you then.